Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. The following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would fine me for if their long arm could ever reach. It's Monday, November 19th, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump, speaking to Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday, Sunday, was asked if he, Donald Trump, actually listened to the tape of journalist Jamal Khashoggi being beaten and then killed. A recording which could conceivably galvanize a president who has sloughed off any call for meaningful consequences delivered to the Saudis. No, I don't need to listen to the tape, Trump answered. But I thought the way he described the tape was quite telling. Uh, It was very violent, very vicious and terrible. Violent, vicious, terrible. That's why he wouldn't engage with the killing of a private citizen by Saudi agents. Violent, vicious, terrible. Those are appropriate words for a murder. But listen to some other contexts in which Trump uses those very same words. Violence, well, famously after Charlottesville. This egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. So violent could describe Nazis. It could also describe the actions of anti-Nazis. Then there was this interview with Leslie Stahl of 60 Minutes. This is a vicious place. Washington, D.C. is a vicious, vicious place. The attacks, the the bed-mouthing. So vicious is a word he has used to describe a murder, but also a word he has used to describe the regular workings of Washington. So violent and vicious paired together. I mean, he did use that with Chris Wallace to describe an extrajudicial killing. He also used violence and clearly reached for the word vicious to describe an anti-Trump protester. Uh, but we've had a couple that were really violent, and the particular one when I said, like to bang them, that was a, uh, a very vicious, very, you know, who's a guy who was swinging very loud and then started swinging at the audience. And you know what? The audience swung back. Violent, vicious, terrible. Remember who he just described as terrible? You are a rude, terrible person. You shouldn't be working for CNN. And if you want to expand violent, vicious, and right there, terrible, beyond the specific journalistic target of the terrible Jim Acosta, that's who he was talking about, here's Trump answering questions from a journalist as he walked to a helicopter on the White House lawn the other week. No, no, you know what? You're creating violence by your questions. You know, you are creating you. And also, a lot of the reporters are creating violence by not writing the truth. The fake news is creating violence. Violent, vicious, terrible. In our world, it is an apt description for a tape depicting a horrific murder. In Donald Trump's world, those same words describe the actions of anti-Nazi protesters, an anti-Trump protester, one specific journalist, all journalists who write things that Donald Trump disagrees with, and Washington, D.C. in general. Granted, Donald Trump has shown deficits in connected language, which could indicate mild cognitive impairment, and or he doesn't care to distinguish between that which is truly horrible and the normal functionings of democracy, which serve to irritate him. 
But make no mistake for a president to talk or to even think in such extremes is, I think it is fair to say, terrible. On the show today, that, what we just played, was just one quote from that Chris Wallace interview. We will use this spiel to dive into some others. But first, he was an iconic sports broadcaster whose voice formed the sonic palette of many a Saturday memory and then a Sunday frantic 14 parlay to just get to even. Okay, maybe I'm being too personal here. But in general, Vern Lundquist is a legend of sports broadcasting who joins me next. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Vern Lundquist has a nickname, Uncle Vern. And the legendary announcer does not just go by the avuncular sobriquet because he is a companion to you as you watch games. It is his nature. It is his affability. But I also think maybe, as with your uncle, he was there during all these important moments, and you somehow remember him in the back of your mind as that field goal attempt was returned for a touchdown or as that putt was made. Vern Lundquist is out with a new book called Play by Play, calling the wildest games in sports. From SEC football to college basketball to the Masters and more. Hello, Vern. Thanks for coming in. Mike, it's a pleasure to be here and to be called Uncle Vern. Uncle Vern. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you, the, the derivation of that uh, moniker was Spencer Hall, who has, has a website devoted to college football. Every day should be Saturday. Mm -hmm. So he gave me that title uh, quite a number of years ago. And I take it as a term of great affection. On the back of the back cover of the book, Tim Tebow yeah. uh, did a blurb, and he refers to me as Uncle Vern. Yeah. And so it, it, it's um, a sign of affability, I think, and I take it as such. Okay. Let's, I could give you 100 compliments, but since you mentioned Tebow, do you cop to at all a little bit of myth-making around the persona of Tim Tebow? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, we did. In the words sure. of Robert Lipside, he would always talk about godding up the sports figures, and no one was godded up more than Tim Tebow. We did 23 Tim Tebow games, so we got to know him as well as one can yeah. at my advanced age and, and interacting with a college student. And uh, Gary is not uh, an evangelistic 
kind of person. Mm-hmm. That's Gary Danielson, your uh, your color analyst right. for these games. So we and the topic came up, and and Gary said uh, with a degree of astonishment in his voice, uh, "Your favorite thing you've said is speaking in prisons." And Tim said, "Yes, I love doing that." And your intent is to convert people. And Tim said, yes. And Gary said, in your years of doing this, how many have you converted? And the answer was two. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So that's good. That's called asking a good question. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if we talk about myth-making, tell me about Willie Anderson, literal myth-making. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, I hope I can condense this story uh-huh. a little bit. This happened uh, beginning of the NFL season in 1984. I, I went to CBS to do college football. And then my life changed when I got a call and they said, uh, we're going to put you in the NFL and Terry Bradshaw is retiring from the Steelers and you're going to be partnered. The very first game we had was Detroit at New Orleans. And of the eight announced teams in the hierarchy at CBS, we were a solid number eight. Yeah, yeah. And we were doing a lot. And this with, is when the Saints fans would show up with brown bags yes, because exactly. they were terrible. Was Billy Sims the running back for Detroit? Uh, Detroit, yes, yeah, he yeah. was. So they were okay, but New Orleans yes. was terrible, yeah. Good recall. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so at our production meeting, uh, he disrupted the production meeting. He said, I got an idea. Let's invent us a football player. And thus began the one-year career of the mythical Willie Anderson. (laughs) And I didn't know how this was going to work, but here is how, just a a quick example. Our first game, Morton Anderson for the Saints kicks it off to Billy Sims. Mm -hmm. And my description was he takes it in at the five, he returns to the 25, the 30, you know, the litany of calls that you make. And... (laughs) Terry jumps in and he says, I'll tell you what, Bubba, that tackle was made by Willie Anderson, free agent defensive back from Colby College in Maine. Colby College. No, I don't know where he came up with that. (laughs) Colby College. Colby College. And so. (laughs) Willie, Bates and Colby, there was a recruiting war for Willie Anderson. Oh, my God. Well, Willie, and then the next week we're doing Atlanta, Tampa. Yeah. And this went on. Yeah. For 14 games. And you kept doing different teams. You oh, yeah. On one oh, team. yeah. Did anyone get wise to you? That's the... That's the Because uh, you're in different markets, and this is at a time oh, sure. when there was no sharing information between markets, obviously no websites, and not even a national... I think probably the institution of the sports TV critic or reporter existed, but they couldn't watch all the games. There was no way no, to. No, it yeah. was just starting with Rudy Martsky right, of USA at USA Today. Today. Yeah. But here's the denouement of the whole thing. Uh, Mike Burks called Colby College, and he said, I'm Mike Burks with CBS Sports. Director said, you're with CBS Sports? And Mike said, yes, I am. He said, well, maybe you can tell me what the hell is going on. Uh, and what is your, what's your point? He said, God almighty, we keep getting phone calls about Willie Anderson and when he played at Colby College. And Mike fessed up. He said, no, he was an imaginary guy. <laughs> and the fellow went, went along with it. He gave, he sent Mike eight T-shirts, yeah. Colby College. And we have a group photo taken in Tampa Bay, uh, and Terry's right in the middle. And my wife is a part of this thing, too. 
and all eight of us in the photo are wearing Colby College T-shirts. Yeah. I've still got the T-shirt. I can't fit into it, <laughs> but uh, it's a great memory. That was at a time when uh, things were a little more fun, maybe a little less fun. You know, we didn't, we didn't, we kind of glossed over some serious issues. But you had at least more latitude to be loose, and it, things weren't so serious with even an NFL broadcast. Yeah, yeah, and you're right on the point. So what trends, I find that there are some trends in announcing, which obviously, if you listen to a game from 1984 to now, the level of description, the amount of knowledge that they think the fan has, has improved exponentially, mostly for the good. But also, there is this intrusion of jargon that I don't really even understand. I don't understand why announcers can't just say he rushes up the middle, why they have to say the A-gap. I don't know what we get out of things like the A-gap. But, you know, do you? it was you, you were deciding what phrases to use. Do you have any thoughts on the uh, intrusion of sports jargon into these uh, You games? must read Phil Mushney. <laughs> <coughs> I do. Yeah. Because it's one of his favorite, uh, most despicable trends. Uh, and he makes fun of broadcast and broadcasters. Uh, I, I have no idea. I don't know what you don't, the Do you say A-gap? Yeah, no, no, no. I've never. Uh, and so we, as much as we could be in mm-hmm. 84, we were jargon-free. Uh, and I, I resent it. Come on. You know, talk to an adult. Yeah. And don't pretend like you're an insider. I want a play-by-play guy to give me the facts, the down distance, and identify the players properly, and then maybe fill in the gaps with stories about I, the people. Right. So you have done tons of college sports. Mm-hmm. In the in the time that you've done it, have you seen a change among the college athletes in terms of amateurism and how happy they are just to be there and playing for a scholarship and feeling compensated. Has any of that, um, oh, has, gosh, has yes. any of that presented itself to you? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and I swallow hard, mm-hmm. uh, when officials with the NCAA insist that we refer to all of these guys as student athletes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish they all were, they all are not. Now, you've got the, the occasion uh, where you've got a guy who graduates in four years. I've got to go back to a Tim Tebow story. This is another of my favorites. Uh, Tim earned his degree in four years, uh, three years. He wanted to play a fourth. According to the NCAA rules, you must be enrolled in a class three hours in order to play football or basketball or mm-hmm. baseball. And so Matt Leinert, uh, Heisman Trophy winner was in the same position when he was at USC. And I told Tim this, that Leinert's class at Southern Cal was introduction to ballroom dancing. Mm. <laughs> and Tim smiled and looked at me and said, mine's not that tough. <laughs> Incredible. Now, I, I, I forget exactly what his GPA was, but, but it was 3.28. Yes, and the reason he was in that position was he, he had graduated already. Yeah. But the, the fuel behind the NCAA is that basketball tournament. I mean, it pays more than all the bills. It is a billion-dollar enterprise. Yes, it is. And with the kids not getting the money— 
we don't turn to the game, the broadcast, to hear you opine about this, but have you ever wanted to say something, and what did you want to say, and how have you dealt with your thoughts on that? Uh, I do have a degree of cynicism about the whole emphasis on student-athletes. Now, I, I, I don't want to disparage the guys who are serious about getting an education, and there are a large number of them, but gosh, I wonder what the percentage is of those whose purpose is not to progress academically. Uh, I want to say, and I, I don't think I ever did, how many of those guys who have aspirations of jumping to the NBA yeah. would you suppose attend any classes at all? Well, it wouldn't. I don't even have a moral judgment on it. Why would they do it? <laughs> it would get in the way of the thing that will make them tens of millions of dollars. Yes, yes. Yeah. You have met with many pro coaches and many college coaches. Do you find that and there's people jump from the pros to college and sometimes it doesn't work out? Look at Nick Saban. Do you find a difference? Do you find a difference, say, football coaches in the personality of a professional coach and a college coach? I think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a difference. I, I think... It may be a subtle passion, but I do believe the successful coaches uh, in college athletics have a passion uh, for the the whole experience. I, I, I tell this story often, and it, it couldn't be more true. Uh, I, I was in the NFL for a long, long time and then was invited, told, you're going back to college. Uh, I, that's where I belonged mm-hmm. all the time. And... Uh, Nancy, my wife, and I were at the Alabama-Auburn game maybe two years after I started with the SEC, and we're at halftime, and you've got, I buy into all this. You've got both bands on the field. You've got the pom-poms in the south end zone, and I put my arm around my wife, and I said, okay, tell me the truth. Would you rather be doing this or Cincinnati at Tampa Bay? (laughs) Uh, There's just no doubt. So, And I do think... Uh, the professional coaches, no matter what the sport, don't have the luxury of enjoying. It, it is win or you're out. Right. So uh, here's my last question. It's just in terms of the words you use. I mean, this is your stock and trade. Did you um, ever try to incorporate different words or work on your vocabulary or listen to game tape and say, I could explain things in different ways? How did you, what was your off season like in terms of Communication and vocabulary. Well, I'll tell you what my in-season was early on, uh, probably for the first seven years of my career in play-by-play. I had a little tape recorder, and I would tape the mic from my tape recorder to the boom of my Uh over-the-air broadcast. I would reach over and manually push uh, start and record on cassettes. And my purpose in doing that was to critique myself and listen carefully, I hope. Like a comedian uh, who does that and listens back to a set. Yeah, and I wanted to see if I was relying on a phrase too often, Mm -hmm. a particular word, a way to say it uh, more succinctly or differently. Uh, And I think it was very, very helpful. Now, What what habits did you find yourself getting into that you got out of? I'll I'll tell you one. Yeah. Um, In basketball. Uh, I would uh, I would say it over and over and over. Somebody takes a shot and they miss, and I would say won't go. Yeah. And then the next time down, won't go, 
well, I got sick and tired of listening to myself say won't go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it it served its purpose. Yeah. Uh, now, I've got tons of tapes of games I've done, but Nancy and I quit a long time ago. Said, "Let's watch me work." <laughs> she was the first to suggest we find another avenue, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, whether it be PBS, and we love PBS. <laughs> Uh, and we love NPR, by the way. Do you, since you're retired, are you watching a lot of sports? Oh, gosh. I, I'm not. I watch a lot of college football. Mm-hmm. And so, and we are Rockies fans uh, living in Colorado. But only peripherally, it's not important to us. We we went to one game uh, this year, Houston How far Astros. is Steamboat Springs? Three and a half hours. Yeah, yeah. 165 so that's, a, that's like living in New York and saying I'm a, an Orioles fan and oh, yeah. going to the game. Well, right? and, and those years in the SEC, uh, there are no nonstop flights from Steamboat to Tuscaloosa. Mm-hmm. So my normal pattern until the last seven years, Steamboat Denver, Denver Atlanta, uh, Atlanta to Gainesville, Knoxville, Columbia, South Carolina, yeah. Baton Rouge. Well, you get to keep your frequent flyer miles, though, oh, right? Yes, but I'm not a passionate sports fan. I thought I've got X number of years to live in this life. Uh, let's experience as much of it as we can. We do. Nancy and I have a very full life together. It involves our participation in Steamboat Springs of classical music. I'm on the board of a thing called Strings Music Festival. Very proud of it. And Nancy was a voice major at the University of Texas. So that is a passion. I, I bet you, Mike, yeah. if I count up my close friends, this is absolutely the truth. My closest friends, I've got more in the world of classical music, including here at the New York Philharmonic, than than I do in the world of sports. Huh. What's your, uh, who's your favorite composer? Uh, Mendelssohn. But I've got a short list. Dvorak, Mendelssohn, I heard some pianist was on uh, an interview program, and he was asked to list his favorites. Uh, and he said, your life is not full if you don't leave a little room for Rachmaninoff. <laughs> and I love that phrase, and and uh, we, we enjoy his music, too. Vern Lundquist, a man of uh, a man of many passions, you know his voice from some of the most seminal moments in the history of sport. His new book is Play by Play, calling the wildest games in sports from SEC football to college basketball, the Masters and more. I have to say, the Masters and more. The more includes NASL and apparently an arpeggio for strings. Who knows? <laughs> Thank you, Vern. Thank you, Mike. It was a pleasure. taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com and now the spiel While Donald Trump does seem to be the worst person ever to hold the office of president, 
and we can detail in the almost two years it seems that we have the evidence in for, his presidency has been quite terrible. I would say his presidency has been far from the worst. And I don't just mean if you list all the presidencies. I mean, there are four kind of categories of president. Let's go through them. A president with a good policy agenda who gets his agenda passed. That's the one we all like. A president with a good policy agenda whose policy agenda fails. Then you have a president with a bad policy agenda who gets his agenda thwarted. And of course, the worst kind of president is the president with a bad policy agenda who gets his agenda through. Now, it could all get a lot worse in the future for Trump. I mean, this is a guy who deployed 5,000 troops to the border based on a lie. What's to say he's also not a guy who will launch a missile to prove a point. But so far, he seems to have been screamingly incompetent. And the latest evidence is he doesn't seem to be laying the groundwork or foundation to get a lot more done. So maybe he's actually the second best kind of president, which is a president with a bad policy agenda who doesn't get anything done. Now, wait, you're saying, wouldn't the second best be the president with a good agenda who doesn't get things done? No, I don't think so. Or at least a case can be made for the Trump kind of president to be the second best or third worst. I'll lay it out in a second. But first, let's get to a couple of the things that Donald Trump said to Chris Wallace, and we'll use that to judge if Trump is the third worst kind of president. So early on in the Fox News interview, he explains the following. I won the Senate. You but, don't mention but, that. Well, Excuse me. Well, Chris Wallace didn't mention that he won the Senate because he didn't win the Senate. Josh Hawley won the Senate and Kevin Kramer and Mike Braun and the senators who took seats from Democrats. They won the Senate. They actually held on to the Senate. Also, Donald Trump, of course, lost tons of House races, a bunch of governor races, 333 legislative races. If he's going to say he won the Senate, he has to own losing them, right? Nope. Number two, I wasn't on the ballot. You weren't on the ballot? But wait, you just said not once, but twice. Are you ready? I won the Senate. But then when faced with the fact that you lost a lot elsewhere, your answer becomes. Okay, and I wasn't on the ballot. Who believes this line of reasoning? Who believes this is, in fact, reason? So what we say is, oh, his base loves it. You know what? In this day and age, if a reporter uses the phrase American Indian instead of Native American, that reporter might be apologizing the next day on the air. If a person on a broadcast says assault rifle instead of semi-automatic weapon, that person would probably be running afoul of the network style guide. But any expert, quote unquote, can get on TV and say, well, you know, Donald Trump's insane, terrible arguments are kind of good arguments because they are appealing to the people that they appeal to, which is to say his base. And for two years, we've nodded. Oh yeah, that's wisdom. That counts as wisdom. Like this is wisdom. What, what, given, what are the odds? One very, in a hundred? What, what? Uh, I don't do odds. We would, I gave very detailed- You sir. Uh, you're right. And very successfully, actually. <laughs> actually, actually, quite unsuccessfully. Famously unsuccessfully. He bankrupted both of his casinos. Stock and bondholders lost $1.5 billion in those casinos. Okay, that is just a fact check. And I don't fault Chris Wallace not for jumping in there. There's other facts to check. And it's not as if checked facts ever check Trump. I cannot conceive of Trump saying, hey, you got me there about anything. And of course, no matter what he says, someone will be on TV to say, well, you know, he is appealing to his base. Thank you. Thanks for that insight, which we sometimes call a tautology on the Fox interview. 
and one with the Daily Caller, where he talked about citizens changing hats and shirts to cast multiple votes. I mean, what they do is they serve to show just how at sea the president is, how without direction he is. Other than leveraging his position to help his businesses a bit and pulling whatever levers he can to stymie the Mueller probe, Trump seems to have nothing going on. His presidency for the next couple years seems to be pointless. Hey, remember that weird Rose Garden ceremony where the House of Representatives took a victory lap? before the Senate voted on health care, and then the Senate didn't vote with them on health care. We'll count the number of Republican representatives from that picture who will not be going to the House in the next term. Distracted and rudderless, the president is losing staff to his first lady's fit of peak and promoting staff to cover up for the Russia-related outbursts of his own. Having done whatever regulatory gutting he could do, and that's going to go on, and with the House much more likely to launch an investigation of Trump than champion legislation of Trump, it's clear that Trump is in the category of terrible agenda, but little skills, savvy, or follow-through to enact said agenda. So why do I think that that might be better than the good guy who just can't get it done? Well, sometimes failure can taint a worthy goal. So sometimes a president with a bad agenda who fails serves out to be in the public interest because when the agenda fails, the agenda is discredited. Exhibit one, President George W. Bush's plan to privatize Social Security. The plan failed. It was very much discredited as an idea. It proved unpopular, and no one thinks it's a good idea or good politics now. So, bad agenda, failing, better for America than good agenda failing. Exhibit two, let's go to Woodrow Wilson. We have his domestic policy representing one of these strains and his foreign policy representing another. Let's take the foreign policy. That is a good agenda that failed. So he wanted to join the League of Nations. He wanted to engage diplomatically. That idea failed. Cut to World War II. When the president with the good idea fails, it's pretty bad. But, you know, domestically, especially with race relations, he was a president with a bad agenda who passed. That is clearly the worst because we got more segregation and more racism in America. Thanks, Woodrow Wilson. So bad ideas failing might actually be preferable to good ideas failing, just in terms of the long-term health of those ideas. I mean, when Hillary Clinton, she had a good idea about healthcare, but it failed. I think that probably set the idea of healthcare back quite a bit. Of course, succeeding would have been better, but, and, and I'm glad she tried, you got to try, but failure, it taints, it discredits, it sets back good ideas. Now let's go to Trump. Trump is a president with terrible ideas, and ideas have mostly been failing. They've been failing to become policy. Yes, of course, he got his two Supreme Court justices on. I'm not going to wish away that. But in terms of what he can do from this point forward, I think he can mostly be, I hope he can mostly be, a failed president with a failed agenda, and that's not so bad. Of course, just him being there and saying the things he says, that has costs. The costs are some, somewhat psychological. The idea of normalization, I'll give some credit to. I mean, it's not good. It's going to depress us every day. But he is a failure, and I think he will continue to fail. So a lot of people heard that interview with Chris Wallace as a confirmation of President Trump's sad state. One story even said that you were in a, quote, cocoon of bitterness and resentment. Trump rebutted that idea right off the bat, but then spent the remaining interview confirming it with his every denial, deflection, and intonation. So there he is, trapped in that 
resentful, bitter cocoon from which I strongly doubt a splendid butterfly will any day emerge. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bien-Aimé and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They do so with a vicious violence and a violent terribleness characteristic of fine journalists everywhere. TJ Raphael is the gist senior producer. She's not vicious or suspicious, just a lovely and delicious. The gist, we're not terrible or unbearable, perhaps overly cerebral and uncomparable. Okay, I'm working on that, guys. And thanks for listening.